Kingdom, Animalia. Phylum, Chordata. Class, Aves. Order of the Phoenix. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter movie club for biologists. Disciplinary hearing of the 12th of August into offences committed by Harry James Potter, resident at number four Privet Drive, Little Winging, Surrey. Interrogators Cornelius Oswald Fudge, Minister for Witness Mer- for the Defence, Albus Percival Wolfric. Brian Dumbledore. Good morning, children. Ordinary wizarding level. Examinations. O W Ls, more commonly known as owls. Study hard, and you will be rewarded. Fail to do so, and the consequences may be severe. So, you all know why we're here. We need a teacher, proper teacher. One who's had real experience defending themselves against the dark arts. Why? Why? Because you know who's back here, Tosspot. Nasty breath standing there as bold as brass. Harry Potter, the boy who stopped the Dark Lord. Friend of mudbloods and blood traitors alike. If my poor mistress... Crucia! It's enough of your bile! Well, you may not like it, Minister, but you can't deny Dumbledore's got style. But you all have studying to do. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. I'm Kyle Price Livingston. Yay, Kyle's back, which means, obviously, we must be doing a movie mini, so... And we're actually recording physically with Kyle today. We're in Grand Junction, Colorado, on a family uh, getaway. It's pretty awesome. So far, so good. And we are talking about the film adaptation of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which we all watched together yesterday and had a grand, grand time. On this podcast, you will hear spoilers for this and future and past Harry Potter properties. The whole (laughs) franchise, really. And also probably spoilers for, like, Agatha Christie novels. Apparently we're doing that these days, too. Um, So that's, that's important. They're very, very old, and if you haven't read them by now, then you know what? I think they're out of the... They're in the public domain, spoilers wise. So anyway. Should that be our next podcast? Just spoiling Agatha Christie? Podcast <laughs> on the Orient Express. That's not bad. I don't hate that. Um, you will also hear cursing and some adult themes. This week's adult themes are enhanced interrogation, green screens, on-screen death, sandstorms, and composite characters. And we're not going to do a summary because y'all know what the fuck happened. Because presumably you've just listened to like 25 episodes on Order of the Phoenix. There's, and if not, hopefully you know what happens in this movie. The good guys kind of win, but not really. Uh, do they win even a little? They win because they realize at the end that they're on the side of good. It's very much an at what cost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they win a moral victory. Right. Which... Isn't a real thing. <laughs> no, it's a literal Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic victory. They take losses in this victory. That's like, true. Severe losses. But, 
Anyway, so we haven't caught up with Kyle for a while, but uh, I just kind of wanted to canvas you about the Order of the Phoenix, the book. And where does it rank for you in the the Harry Potter canon? I like the book. Um, it's, let's see, it's probably my third favorite book behind Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows Part 1. Whoa, yeah. all right. Damn. Or do you mean the whole Deathly Hallows? Uh, really the whole Deathly yeah. Hallows, yeah. I found myself as I've gotten older and reread the books, I really like them as they get darker. Whereas when I first read them, I very much liked the early books better. It's an interesting shift that has happened to me. And it does not apply to the movies, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I generally like this book. It's, it's a lot of Moody Harry, but I'm down with Moody Harry now. Harry being moody is like something, yeah, it's it's something I feel strongly in favor of. I think he has every right. We've talked yeah. about that a lot. But yeah, I, I'm there with you. What do we think of the movie just generally? Let's start there. I remember liking this movie way better on earlier viewings. Maybe that's because I hadn't come off of a multi-episode deep dive podcast into the workings of the book Order of the Phoenix, but I found Order of the Phoenix on this viewing to be not that satisfying. And I don't know if it's just because it's inherently difficult to boil down a... How many pages is this book? Many. It's so many pages. I don't know. It felt uh, it felt pretty rushed, you know, from the uh, from the opening scene with the Dementors and stuff didn't feel that motivated to me except that it was clearly motivated by the fact that this was in the book and this is something we absolutely can't cut out to fit it into a two hour and like 18 minute movie i agree that the pacing of this one is really really weird and kind of like jolts way way forward and then like slows down at kind of strange moments The hard thing about adapting these books is you have these like, oh, this is such a central plot point that we can't cut it out, but we also have to cut out everything before and after it for like 100 pages. So yeah, things feel totally like they just sort of crop up out of nothing occasionally, I feel. Well, I mean, right off the bat, it's a little bit like that because, you know, the other books are shorter, so we get to spend more time with the Dursleys. But in this book, it's just Harry's on a swing set feeling real sad. Dudley shows up and is like a dick to him for 10 seconds. And then, boom, Dementor attack. Right. And, and then it... suddenly we're in the trial and then we've, like... First we spend 30 seconds at his house, at Grimald Place. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, just like a snap. Yeah. We, we learn about extendable ears and we learn that there is a thing called the Order of the Phoenix. And then, bam, we're at the ministry. Right. And right. these are very meandering chapters. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's a hard book to film, I think, because there's actually not that much straight-up action in the book Order of the Phoenix, it really is a slow burn. It's a lot of discussing the politics of the wizarding world. Yeah, and it's a lot of hairy internal stuff. Kyle, you had some thoughts on the, like, aesthetic of the movie. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed when I watched this movie, and I, I liked the movie better this time through than I did when I first saw it, partially because, for some reason this time, I was immediately struck by the beauty of it it is a really pretty movie it's very colorful and if you're if you're if you enjoy that kind of thing then i think it's a really pretty movie they really went for something with this um 
the early stuff at the Dursley's house. Half the room is like bathed in green, and like Uncle Vernon looks like like just like a head floating on a, like a weird emerald sea, which is cool <laughs> and disorienting, and I think like fits well with Harry's total confusion at what's going on right at that moment. And uh, they they continue to to bathe people weirdly in colored light uh, throughout the rest of the film. Uh, it's it's lovely, um, but odd. Yeah, I think. So this is the first of four that David Yates directs, right? Mm-hmm. And and I actually like the look of his films. I mean, first of all, he they they get so much darker and moodier as the series like finishes up. I really really like the appearance of both Deathly Hallows, mm-hmm. and I think it's nice in this series to have achieved some semblance of aesthetic consistency because the first four movies are all over the map and it's like it's the same acting or it's the same actors but it almost doesn't feel like you're watching the same series like they veer so wildly tonally aesthetically directionally so it's nice to have somebody who I think is at least pretty competent do the last four they they look and feel cohesive like David Yates before he got this gig had pretty much done TV and TV movies and, like, was not sort of a name, necessarily. Uh, with, with previous directors, like Chris Columbus and Alfonso Cuaron, they were, like, they were going for famous people and saying, hey, put your stamp on this. Make this look... Make Harry Potter but look like your kind of movie. It's it's weirdly similar to Tim Burton's Batman. You know, they're like, yeah, make Batman, but make it a Tim Burton movie. People have wildly different opinions <laughs> on how successful that was. And I think they have wildly different opinions about the first few movies, uh, uh, Harry Potter movies, in a similar way. Now they've gotten someone who I totally agree. He's like, he's a competent hand. He knows how to make a movie. And he just lets the material dictate it, I think. Although, again, in this movie, I do see random splotches of color as him sort of attempting to put his stamp on it. I just, maybe it, it just works better for me. Well, it's not like... I mean, the one that, like, the third one, the one that Cuaron does is so aesthetically, like, heavy. Oh, yeah. And I actually really, I like that one, Standalone. It's beautiful. But it feels like a completely different universe. It's like a gothic universe. horror universe. <laughs> it is. It's, like, set in a whole different, it's, like, different world building. And so you're like, this is cool if you had done the whole series, but in the context of eight movies, it's like, what am I watching? And these are just... I think he has an aesthetic, but it is sort of like backgrounded to the content enough that you feel like you're watching a Harry Potter movie. Just so we, so we like Yates. I do. Yeah, and I really like the three that follow this. Actually, mm-hmm. I think I. I mean, I actually. Well, we'll get to this, but I remember the Deathly Hallows films way better than I remember the Deathly Hallows book, and I remember a lot of scenes really indelibly from it. So yeah, I think he does a pretty good job. There's some strong scenes in this film, even though you know I felt that the I felt that it was a little rushed. Although how could you not rush? So that's kind of a silly complaint. Adapting these is so hard. That's kind of a silly complaint on uh, my part. So uh, let's talk about some scenes we liked. Training montage. Yes, we well finally get done. A, we finally get a training montage. Agreed. Which it's... is what which is what these books and movies have needed uh, from the beginning, kind of. The Dumbledore's army scenes are so fun, and that big like kind of suit of armor thing that they bring to 
semi-life to practice the, the training dummy. on. Yeah. The, exactly. The training dummy is like so medieval and badass. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a really, really nicely done set of little vignettes. To me, those scenes really represent the spirit of the book the most. Probably out of the whole, well, maybe not out of the entire movie, but up there. They're also the only parts where anybody is having any fun. <laughs> so they're like a huge relief because it is. I mean, we talked about this during the books. This is relentlessly dark and upsetting. And having like right in the middle, like a, a substantial, I mean, it's like a fairly lengthy training montage, which is really fun and a relief and from the, the relentlessness. And it's the only time anybody besides Harry gets character development. We get Neville like learning how to perform the Expelliarmus charm. We get some good Ginny. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sad longing. Sad longing Ginny. Which is not in the book, but which is a good, good choice because they're about to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime Harry and Joe are having a moment, you get these like not so subtle, pained Ginny looks. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate it. It just, it also like, she's such a fun actress and it's fun to have, to give her something to do. Right. Uh, she does a lot with a little, with very little. Yeah. Uh, I would say. Ron As Hermione. does the character, Ginny. As does the character, Ginny. She doesn't get a lot of screen time, but she's so fun whenever she's, like, on stage. Ron and Hermione don't do much in this movie. Well, to be fair, Ron is, like, almost entirely absent from this book. <laughs> That's true. All of Ron's subplots are easily excised because they have almost no impact on the book <laughs> except to, like, develop Ron's character. No Ron Prefect, uh, no Gryffindor winning the Quidditch House Cup, even though they're playing with spare parts. Gryffindor winning the House Cup in this book is ridiculous. It'd be like if J.R. Smith led the Cavaliers to a title against the Warriors this year. <laughs> but please let that happen. Like, <laughs> I'm, I, it, it is an absolutely ridiculous thing to occur. But, but, you know, it... What does Ron get the rest of these books? That's true. Like, he gets a prefect badge yeah. and... No, Ron, in, the, in the next two, Ron has a lot to do. That's true. We get a I lot guess. of Ron yeah. in Half-Blood Prince <laughs> and a lot of Ron in Deathly Hallows. Stupid disappearing Ron. Yeah, we get him. We get him walking away, turning his back on his friends and disappearing. Yeah, but in a way that is like really solid plotting and sure. character development. But yeah, I mean, get a grip, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, so Ron doesn't do anything, and Hermione's only function in these movies is to basically provide exposition. Like, she says, oh, this is Luna Lovegood. The Ministry's interfering at Hogwarts. Um, she does still set up the meeting. Yes. She sets oh, yeah. the Dumbledore's okay. she sets army up the group in motion. But I also, I mean, I think we talked about this last movie, but it's like getting more and more and more pronounced. Emma Watson is so outrageously hot. That she's, like, a less and less believable Hermione. Like, she's the one where, like, you know, they cast these three kids, and they were all, they, they're super well cast, and they're fun. But the boys stay sort of goony looking. <laughs> and she is a movie star. Like, she has grown into full movie star beautiful. Uh, Matthew Lewis is also getting hot by uh, Movie 5, Neville, and they just have to frump him up yeah. so hard. <laughs> they just... Slouch. The direction must right. The direction must have been just like okay, slouch as much as you can because you're so tall and perfect. Do not make eye contact with anyone or look towards the camera because we will see your beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and get a footstool for Daniel Radcliffe yeah. in any scenes with Neville. Yeah. 
avoid like full cheekbone exposure at all costs. <laughs> Nobody can see your jawline. <laughs> I actually think uh, in terms of sort of looking goony, at least in this movie, Radcliffe has a decent haircut. Yes. Which is very uncommon throughout these films. Ron <laughs> has such bad hair, but I feel like Ron's bad hair is actually like the best directorial choice that all these guys make. Because Mrs. Weasley clearly cuts it. I know. And all the Weasleys have kind of bad hair, except Ginny, who's just really pretty. Yeah, the twins look t- that terrible. They have, like, uniquely <laughs> awful hair. I, I like that they're always wearing their Weasley sweaters. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, it's, like, weirdly, like, they've closed ranks and are feeling, like, clannish. It is. You know? Like, full Weasley aesthetic at all times. Yeah. I kind of, I mean, this is, like, not nice to these, the actors, but you do want the Weasley twins to be a little hotter. Like, they're mm-hmm. really weird-looking kids. Oh, I think they look fine. And I guess the thing that's... that's fun about them is that they've got, like, enough swagger that it doesn't matter. But I always imagine them, like, a little bit better-looking. They got... do pretty well, romantically. They uh, do. I mean... They've and... got big dick energy. <laughs> they <laughs> deeply do. <laughs> yes. That's going to be, like, three weeks late for Twitter, but... Whatever. This, uh... We're basically olds now. True. Um, so in terms of other scenes or decisions we like, what works better in the movie than in the book? Because there's always a couple of plot holes that a smart director closes. Uh, Cho diming out the group instead of her friend is pretty good. Her friend was totally unnecessary. Yeah, Marietta is utterly random and never comes back. Yeah. And I like that it's Cho because it also gives... Harry and Cho a good reason to like disintegrate especially because obviously they had to write out the date scene because it's just like too much right so it's like a plausible reason for that to just die on the vine and it's less expected than Marietta who is immediately suspicious of the Order of the Phoenix and if you were taking bets it would either be it's like who's gonna sell us out Marietta or oh who's the what's the other guy's name fucking Zachariah Smith Zachariah Smith Smith. that (laughs) douchebag you know like one of the two just expel them speaking of random members of dumbledore's army we finally figured out that this nigel kid is a is a composite of the creepy brothers but it's he's just so random and weird and just this like weird little pipsqueak that's weirdly like front of frame a lot of the time and you're just the whole time who the fuck is this kid i don't know i don't know why they had to write out the creepy brothers yeah colin was in the chamber of secrets he got petrified i've often wondered this what (laughs) happens to the creepies just give us two creepies there aren't that many side characters that really get as much development as the creepies got in that movie I know, we, we already know who yeah. he, yeah, we know maybe they couldn't, maybe uh, Colin was too expensive by now, maybe he got like... Just uh, recast Colin, that's not that hard, people don't remember what that kid looks got, like. I don't know, maybe he got like a... Is Colin the kid from Love Actually? Am I misremembering that? No, I don't think that's true, they just look alike. It wouldn't be surprising since every British person is in that movie right. and these movies. And Harry Potter, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot uh, of overlap. The Venn diagram of Love Actually and Harry Potter is. I mean, luckily, we're missing Hugh Grant from the, Harry Potter. The ending I don't know. of that might be awesome. Who He's, would he play? Uh, he would be so. <sighs> he would have been a good Gilderoy Lockhart. Have y'all seen Paddington? 
Yes. yes. He's so good. He is good in Paddington. But not Gilderoy, because pa- Kenneth Branagh is, is an amazing. amazing Gilderoy. Yeah. Who, but Hugh also could um, Gilderoy. Hugh Grant could have... Hugh, ooh, he would have been a terrible werewolf. Let's see. Um, Probably somebody that never made it to... Dollish. <laughs> Ludo Bagman. Yeah. That would oh! Have been he would have been a really good Ludo Bagman. He would have been a great Ludo Bagman. He been a good Ludo Bagman. But he was totally written out. Mm-hmm. Because yes. Because you don't need Ludo Bagman. Well, also because... Ludo Bagman is off-brand Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> so true. Just the generic version, the retread, <laughs> the retread Gilderoy. Uh, Love Actually, the opening monologue of Love Actually is basically Dumbledore's closing monologue in every one of these books. Love also. really is all you need. <laughs> <laughs> Love actually saves the day <laughs> all the time. Another obvious thing that works better, this has happened before, thank God for these directors making this choice, is Neville being the one to find the room of requirement and just writing Dobby out entirely. Oh, God. Because Dobby is one of the best characters in Harry Potter and also almost exclusively unnecessary when he is in the books. Like so much great magic, it ruins the books if you continue to use them later in the books. You're not allowed to use time turners later. There's no invisibility cloak in this movie whatsoever. Um, there's no Marauder's Map or anything. You'd think maybe the Marauder's Map could have helped them find a room, but they didn't. Um, Is the room requirement not on the Marauder's Map? It's an interesting question, right? Whoa! No, it must be. But, oh, because they use the map in the book to like figure out when they can all leave in groups. Never mind. But, uh, I, I don't know. I, I I love all the magic in these books, and yet it seems like they ruined, they ruined the plot. Like, they ruin any future attempt at, uh, at problem solving unless you just ignore them or write them out. Dobby could solve so many problems in these books. Right, they introduce all these objects that you're like, this is the actual answer. Like, I had never thought about that before, but Harry never uses the Marauder's Map. They're like, oh, where will we meet? Where will we meet? We, like, it's a big problem for, like, 50 pages of where will Dumbledore, Dumbledore's army meet. And you're just like, don't you have a magical map? Isn't that what a map does? <laughs> Shows you locations. You could probably ask the Marauder's Map. That thing can talk. Oh, yeah. Just be like, hey, dead dad, what do you suggest? <laughs> Speaking of house elves, I get, again, why this is just too complicated a subplot, but whoever does Creature's voice is really good, and Creature is animated really nicely, and I think we need, like, three times as much Creature in this movie. More Creature. Plus, like, that's a really good part of the plot, and it, Sirius is too one-dimensional in this one. Sirius is just, like, good guy that dies, as opposed to, like, having all those really complicated decisions. And Yeah, he kind of, they have, like, one argument with Mrs. Weasley that lasts for, like, ten seconds, and, uh... Yeah. Then, done. I and Mrs. Know. Weasley comes across as very clearly in the wrong, whereas in the books, they're both right and wrong. Um, one of the things that I think works really, really well in this movie is the Dolores Umbridge character, who is just so phenomenally, awfully, unlikably evil. Uh, just an incredible performance. Way to go, Imelda Stone. Yeah, she embodies that character. Just even the the little giggle, which uh. is kind of hard for me to hear in my head when I read the book, and she just, it's like bone chilling when she does it. So that's a big point in favor of this movie, because if you're going to get anything right in Order of the Phoenix, you have to get 
Dolores Umbridge, right? Yes. Because that's the engine that drives the, like, main conflict in this. She is pitch perfect. And they do a lot of fun visual touches with her. Like, the whole, the wall of decrees is really satisfying looking. Her office is perfectly set designed. Mm -hmm. Those cat plates. Oh, my God. So upsetting. And there's even, like, to your point about colors, there is a sort of a soft pink light in there that, like, contrasts really nicely. And I, like, everything is pretty and pink and frilly, and then that quill is, like, horrifying looking. And it's just, like, this really nice visual touch. I think she's so well done. And I actually really like a scene that's not in the book of them, of the entirety of Dumbledore's army doing the doing lines together you just like get the kind of like community sense of that pain mm-hmm. although does she have that many quills it's because crazy. that sucks it's crazy who is supplying these bills <laughs> mass produced blood quills it's horrifying <laughs> and she you know that if she's down Diagon Alley buying it she's gonna be in like that bright pink outfit she just does not no, change that's a nocturne that that's a nocturne she's yeah, nocturne. yeah, yeah. in nocturne alley in that be. cardigan she has to be I love the, the like the pink outfit works so perfectly in the dungeon scene with Snape yes everything is blue green Except her, who is like bright pink and fe- looking like so out of place, but so like proud to be out of place. She's so good. And they've Which, done the pink really nicely, so that it is that kind of nauseating pink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's Pe- not Pepto-Bismol a pleasant pink. color. Yeah, 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 for sure. Boy, though, when she even Nocturnally, I think would get sketched out mm-hmm. if she went there and was like, "I need thirty of the blood quills." Yeah. <laughs> well, we find I need out a mass order. Somebody wrote in. She made that. Right. Yeah. That's her magic. So that, one of the things that we had a little trouble with with her is she's really good at magic in this movie. Like crazy good. Like you constantly see her doing magic, like pulling students' pants up, you know, like minor little funny sight gag things that are really great. But she's actually not saying anything out loud when she does it. These are silent incantations and she's just flicking her wand and, like, that's hard to do. Yeah. That's, we learn that is extremely difficult. And she does it like nothing. And she does it a bunch of times and then is strong enough to blow a hole in the wall of Hogwarts <laughs> to the room of requirement. Which kind of, why did they wait so long to do that? Yeah, it's like, you guys have known, like, it's a really funny scene where Filch is sitting outside the room of requirement with a sandwich just, like, waiting for them to emerge. And it's like, you guys could have skipped, like, ten steps here. Yeah. Uh, Umbridge's arm is a cannon. <laughs> Just an excuse to put David Bradley on camera. Oh, He's God. He's so good. He's so uh, funny. And they really, they nail the Umbridge-Filch relationship really well. His, mm-hmm. like, longing for her approval, and she's just like, ugh, but, like, help me. He's like Dwight Schrute-level loving of fascism. Oh, yes. Know? Very good. He is very Dwight Schrute. That's very good. A fun fact that I learned from the from Amazon when we were watching the movie is that in real life, Imelda Staunton and Emma Thompson are like best friends. And That's awesome. there's that great scene where she throws out Trelawney and I just like really like imagining them doing that scene together and like hamming it up. Because apparently they're very, very close. That's awesome. That's really nice. That makes total sense, actually. Like, that's awesome. They're in a lot of shit together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because they're two British women of a certain age, and Mm -hmm. there's, like, not that many of those acting. Right. Um, Okay, so yeah, some quibbles. Uh, Dick Wad Dumbledore. What the fuck? What the fuck? Like, Dumbledore, there's this one scene in particular. When he's, like, mean to students, it's, like, so not Dumbledore. So there's the scene... There's the scene where Umbridge is evicting Trelawney. Dumbledore breaks it up, 
And then he, like, turns to the students and says, Don't you all have studying to do? Get the fuck out of my face. Did you put your name in that goblet, Harry? (laughs) And it's just like, what? Dumbledore does problematic things, but he's not an asshole. He does fucked up stuff, but with a twinkle in his eye. He's so emotionally controlled. Yes. That's what bothers me about it, is, like, Dumbledore doesn't get perturbed. Right. That, like, watching Dumbledore get ruffled is just, like, anathema. That's not something he would do. He would not have a reaction in that moment. No. I, I just, like, did the... That wasn't an ad-lib, was it? Like, how did that get in the script? I mean, that's, like, a total... Well, I think it's supposed to be funny, but it's so off-putting from that character that it, it total, totally ruins it. It falls it, really yeah. flat. It's a total... You could have delivered that line in a Dumbledore way that was, like, funny and not, like, I might throttle you. Right. Like, <laughs> sort of how he gives the, like, beginning-of-term speeches. Yeah. like. Miss, like, Argus Filch would like me to remind everybody that you don't go in the forest. Like, he does have that sort of, like, if you did it with that kind of, like, anarchic Dumbledore charm. Yeah. yeah. Just say it like the more than one innocent life could be saved. Just do an impression of the previous Dumbledore and everything <laughs> will be fine. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> Michael Gambone was like, what if we just play this with rage? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think Dumbledore's pissed at the world, which he kind of is, but it's But eternal. he hides it. Yeah, I, I, I could not get over that. Does he really not know that they're training a secret army in the Room of Requirement? Doesn't he kind of know everything that goes on at Hogwarts? Yeah, I have that question in the book, too. I, He must know. But he's really... I don't know, though, because he's really sealed himself off from Harry. He's kind of intentionally... But he knows what's going on with That's Harry. True. Harry and all of Gryffindor House, apparently, who are all in the room of requirements. Dumbledore so. does nothing else if not, like, turn a blind eye and, like, pretend like he doesn't know a thing yeah. is going on. So I yeah. guess, yeah, on some level, he's probably aware. Um, oh, something that really bothered me about this movie, and it it's, becomes a running problem in these, in these movies, I think, uh, is that it doesn't at all feel like a year of school anymore. All right, so there's none of the Quidditch stuff, fine. There's basically no holiday stuff in this movie, which is normally a way that they tie the year together. There's no Halloween at all. There's there's a brief Christmas scene with a wacky animated like CGI <laughs> Santa Claus. It's like from a Hallmark commercial it's or something. It's super weird, and it is also thrown off by, which we can talk about in, in a little bit, thrown off by the fact that it, it very much appears that Sirius Black is in a completely different house than the rest of the family in this scene. <laughs> Super weird. But uh, there's there, you get, what, one, two classes. Um, they're, they're just Umbridge classes. Uh, kind you, of Trelawney for in, a in, second, the, in the yeah. Umbridge supercut, where yeah. she's interrogating the different... Sure, you get like five-second bits yeah. of... But there's no sense of, like, let's go right. to the library, let's do homework, let's go to class. It doesn't... It feels like it could all happen over the course of, like, a couple days. And that's a bummer. Because I love the concept that this is happening as you're living at a boarding school. That's part of the joy of it. Yeah. And then the, one of the school scenes we do have is at the end they're taking their charms exam. And that is the moment that the Weasley twins in the movie decide to do their sort of massive fireworks disruption and leave school for good. And I hate that particular directorial choice because it makes the Weasleys look like... it. It makes the Weasleys look like assholes. Like, it's great when what they're interrupting is, like, 
umbrage just like walking around being a witch. Well, I guess she's a literal witch being a bitch. <laughs> um, but in this, it's like they're basically keeping all these kids from going to college. Right. This is during the OWLs, which we barely know because that's almost removed. Like, the fact that this is a big deal is almost removed from the books. but Or in the, from the movie, rather. Because, like, in the book, they spend some time cramming. Oh, yeah. It's there's a, pretty a ton big of test deal. stuff. Um, and, like, the whole fact that Umbridge isn't going to teach them what they need to pass their OWLs is a huge motivating factor for Hermione, I think, in putting together... The Dumbledore's army. It's important right. to her to pass this exam. That's what causes her to risk getting expelled, which is such a hilariously Hermione way to think <laughs> about things. It's completely missing from the book, uh, from the movie. And you're right. It, this scene just makes them look terrible. Right. It would be so obnoxious and unkind of them to keep all these kids from passing their charms OWLs. And I just, in general, the Weasley twins are more of jerks in the movies rather than sort of like I don't know like stateless anarchic heroes <laughs> yeah that scene felt a bit pandery with the, all the kids running out like throwing their tests away it was very you were kind of expecting like school's out for summer to start like playing <laughs> yeah. and like we don't need no education but like Hermione would have thought that that was a disaster Did like she... she would have not liked that at all all the Ravenclaws would have freaked right out yes <laughs> also uh, I'm sure those exams still count yeah uh, and determine your future yep congratulations right. no one can go to wizard college anymore uh, they also which they don't really have, so I guess that doesn't matter. They defend, or they don't. There's that scene where Seamus is telling off Harry in the common room. Yeah. And the Weasley twins are sitting right there, and they like don't speak up. Like Ron is totally alone in standing up for Harry. And like we're supposed to believe the Weasley twins are just as invested in the Order of the Phoenix as anybody else. They live in the crazy invisible house in London with everyone else. They're <laughs> inventing weird meat string ears to listen at doors. <laughs> like, they care. I also have a question about those ears. What? So what, what did Crookshanks eat? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Crookshanks <laughs> eats an extendable ear. What is that made of? Uh, maybe they were growing them on the back of lab rats? Yeah, 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 like genetically, like cloned ears. It's super creepy. So gross. Also, they're not lab rats. They're hyper-intelligent animal companions in this oh, world. Yeah. So they're super <laughs> aware of what's happening to them. Peter Pettigrew. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> Grown on the back, growing ears on the back of Peter Pettigrew uh, as a side hustle when he was uh, on the lamb. There's this other moment with the Weasley twins that feels very out of character when Harry is clearly trying to, like, Mac on Cho. And they're, like, with him, they're like, oh, Harry, we, like, had this really cool idea for a prank. And Harry's like, yeah, 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 no, I'm, like, I'm about to make out for the first time. And the Weasley twins would never cock block anyone. They would nope. never walk up to you and start talking about pus-filled boils before you walked over to talk to a girl. No. That would no. not happen. The Weasley twins know how to talk to girls better than a single male character in this entire series like they would get it in this in this movie they are in these movies they're so charming that uh one of them asks someone to the winter ball by chucking a ball of paper at them and then pantomiming a dance like and that works oh yeah angelina johnson is like hell yeah she's like sweet i'm there okay so what do we think about the 
battle scene at the end because it's much shorter and we lose a lot of the like hilarious like we lose the Ron getting attacked by brains thing. I'm two minds of it because on the one hand I did think those scenes were a little messy in the book but yeah this adaptation is messy in a different way I, I, I don't know it's a little tighter it works better their 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 rendition of the ministry lends itself to this cool action scene you yeah. know big black chunk rock and and uh black and gold highlights everywhere everything just looks awesome and colorful like the whole rest of the movie does and it does serve as a really beautiful backdrop for the effects that they randomly introduce in this scene for example the black and white trails of smoke yeah how do you get assigned black versus white trails is that something you're conjuring good guys are zooming around as white smoke trails and the bad guys are zooming around as black smoke trails. Not very uh, subtle. No, it's really hot. Like, what color is Severus Snape's smoke trail? Gray. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But then both sides are like, whoa. Hey there, buddy. Hold on with your purple lightsaber, okay, so Miss Windu. I don't know you. So they're zooming. Okay, so they're zooming around. That's like. They're like kind of apparating, but not. But what they're are they not. Doing? They're what flying. Are they doing there? It makes no sense. That's not. That's it's not canonical. Not at all. And they keep it for the rest of the movie. They right. do, yeah. and visually, it's really cool. But it's like, what the fuck is this magic? Yeah. Like, <laughs> who invented this? What this. are you doing? I mean, can yeah, you do it neat. through walls? How did you get in? Like, it's, yeah. It's neat where the mass Death Eaters are kind of blocking their path at every turn, yeah. and like, no. I really like. Uh, his name escapes me right now. I, I, I've always really liked. The Lucius Malfoy. Jason Isaac. Jason, Jason Isaac. Isaac is really so Jason good. Isaac is Lucius Malfoy. He chews so much scenery in this in a good way. Like, Lucius is way better in the movies. We also get Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Oh, she's so good. She When she licks the dark mark, it's like the most sort of like spine tingling moment. You, It's like so, it's like sexy, but like horrifying and really disgusting. She's perfectly cast. And she doesn't have an inexplicable French accent. Like <laughs> Jim Dale's reading. <laughs> Just because of her name, of course. Of course, I love Jim Dale. Yeah. Uh, He's great, yeah. but for some reason in the book five recording, yeah. Bellatrix has has a French accent. Um, so yeah, the, it, it's real hard to believe in that fight scene that anybody was left alive more than 30 seconds. There's like yeah. no cover in that hall. No! Like, <laughs> One thing I don't love about the fight scene is that all the kids immediately get kidnapped and like Not carry... immediately, they pull off some good... Very some briefly. Good, some good charms. Very, very briefly. But like in the book... They all sort of, like, they get taken out in the line of battle, and it's just, like, way more badass. Like, Hermione gets, like, sliced with that purple fire and stuff. And in this, they're, like, just incapacitated, and Harry has to, like, kind of save them all by himself. No, I know, but they couldn't have done the, like, weird, the running in to and out of doors thing without it looking like (laughs) Scooby-Doo. That's true. I I wish I could do the, like, you know when they have the, 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 like... (laughs) It, like, in my head, the scene... I I visualized the scene as being very much like the scene in Aliens where they're running through the tunnel and they're being picked Mm -hmm. off one by one from behind. But um, you're right. I mean, the scene would have had to be really different from the way it was written, regardless of how. Yeah. They yes. Made it. No, that's absolutely true. Um, and I do think you're right. The aesthetics of the Ministry are really fun, and 
The Dumbledore part of the fight scene is so rad. Yeah, it's yeah, great. I think that, that part's pretty solid. Yeah. Where Voldemort breaks all the glass and then Dumbledore turns it into sand and it's just like, oh, physics. Yeah. <laughs> giant ball of fire versus giant ball of water. Like, yeah, it's a little survive. bit over the top, but no, I it's love great. it. It's awesome. It's what, what magic should be. What do we think of the Voldemort dynamics in, in this movie? One thing I liked and... It's really subtle, but I notice it. Is Voldemort has this weird, sort of like snake like, like kind of neck cracking thing he does. Mm. And Harry starts doing it partly through the uh, movie. Yeah. Harry develops this like mirroring, like Voldemort neck gesture. Interesting. And it's like a really, it's like a super subtle visual cue. But by the end, I noticed Harry was doing this very like scary Voldemort like move. I like when Voldemort like flashes onto the platform. Yeah, the sense of possession I think is a little stronger than in the books at times, or they've rendered it in a cool visual way. Yeah, and Harry does start to have a sort of like menacing like physicality that you can kind of he he and Ray Fiennes I feel like probably worked together a lot to like mirror each other physically because yeah. he really starts to get that. Um, the dreams are super creepy. Why so sexual? They're very sexual. They're like zooming in on Harry's like racing pulse and like sweat on his neck. And he's kind of yeah. writhing, and then there's a snake. Yeah. Yeah. Slithering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, they're they're like David Gates. What are you gonna bring to this series to make it your own? He's like, well, I'm mostly gonna try to stick to the themes. I'll add some interesting color schemes. Oh yeah, and darkly sexual undertones. Is Wet that dreams. you guys looking for? Darkly sexual. <laughs> I mean, Wet dreams. to I mean, be that's sort fair, of like... there are darkly sexual undertones in this book. That's true. Yeah. And may as well do them visually in some way, but I, I don't know. Daniel Radcliffe is just such an, feels like such an unsexual actor. So like doing really like close up body stuff with him just like skeeves me out. So y'all didn't see Equus. No, I was going to say. But even in, <laughs> but I, the idea of him and Equus skeeves me out. Like I Well, mean, it's supposed to, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it probably is part of why he got cast. Because it it's makes like, people uncomfortable ugh. that it's Rag, uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I like the <clears> idea <throat> because Harry has this like kind of, Harry has this feeling of shame of being possessed by Voldemort. So there's just some sort of teen coming of age themes there that uh i like the decision personally yeah like experiencing shame around your sexuality and experiencing shame around your like innermost kind of demon thoughts i get that we get 10 lines of minerva mcgonagall dialogue and 15 minutes of sexy fever dreams that's true (laughs) the the balance could be fixed i just every single one of these movies needs to quadruple the amount of dame maggie smith yeah just, it's impossible to get enough of her. She's great. In the tiny bit she is allowed to do in this movie, she is great. Her scenes with Dolores Umbridge are incredible. Oh, God. They have such good chemistry. They're, like, really, really great together. I mean, that's, like, ripped from the pages of the book. Oh, yeah. 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 No, it's true. And it's probably the best, like, dynamic mm-hmm. in terms of how people interact with Umbridge. Yeah. Okay, who's everybody's unsung hero? Yeah. So, Robert Hardy, who plays Cornelius Fudge does an incredible job, both in his, like, portrayal of a despot clinging to power and in a suddenly broken man at the end who realizes he has lost everything. That's such a... When he says, he's back, so good. It's like a really iconic moment. He's back! Yeah. 
the scenes of the like spinning newspaper headlines uh, with clips of his interviews, I think, are really, you know, he really just really nails that. But uh, I also like some of the, um, the design choices around the ministry. I like the big monumental poster of fudge that's in the uh in the ministry of magic it's it's pretty fascist feeling mm-hmm. yeah so i think actually just to that point um i really like the daily prophet kind of transition scenes those like do a lot of really fast exposition yeah. in a in a useful way it's a, it's a great example of um a director choosing a, a visual representation of the cool, of wizard's magic by which I mean, like, uh, wizard magic is at its best when it is old-timey um, and sort of harkens back to, like, classical images of magic, but is used <laughs> in a modern way. The spinning newspaper take is such a cliched way of cutting from scene to scene. Yeah. But it's charming here. And it, it is. Totally right, because works. it's like, oh, that's what a wizard newspaper would look like? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and the, like, wild kind of, like, typography and stuff is yeah. really... It's, it's just very wizard look they all look like wanted posters they do <laughs> they all do um and they do have this kind of like steampunk yeah kind of look and i that feels very it's, like true to the wizarding world it's funny because it's tough to make it's tough to make the spinning newspaper work, fresh yeah but i think they do it here. i like it plus you just need some of that because there is so much of the press in this book yeah yeah mm-hmm they actually were able to, like, ram in that theme without, like... Doing any real sort of, like, dialogue around mm-hmm. it. No, yeah. it's... But it's, like, the Daily Prophet is a really... It's a constant presence in the way that it is a constant right. presence in the book. Well, our discussion of the good things in this movie has sort of elevated my opinion of it. <laughs> I started this being like, ah, I don't know. Uh, I, I just don't have the courage of my convictions. I, I just, like... I mean, they're always, like, enjoyable. Like, I'm um, never not going to have fun watching a Harry Potter movie. It's interesting that there are people that are Harry Potter fans just from these movies. I can't fathom that. How would you know what was going on? How could you follow this? It makes uh, no sense. Yeah. I, like, don't all the way know what's happening, and I just read these books chapter by chapter, <laughs> like, like close reading textual analysis. My unsung hero is Ivana Lynch as Luna Lovegood. Mm-hmm. I love her story just as an actress. Like, she came out of nowhere. She, like, wrote JK a letter and was just like, I'm Luna, basically. This is my this is my role of a lifetime. And she got cast. And she's charming and delightful. And she elevates that character. And every scene she's in, I just, I could listen to her little voice all the time. I just think she's wonderful. She's great. Yeah. Scene stealer. It's nice that she explains the Thestrals instead of Hagrid. It is. I actually like that scene a lot because then you get that moment of connection without mm-hmm. having to do the whole nearly headless Nick grief counselor thing. <laughs> yes, not enough is made. Not enough is made of uh, Luna as the telepath, but she is able to multiple times apparently able to find Harry without seeing him, both like under the invisibility cloak, and then in this movie he walks up behind her and she's like, "Hey, Harry." Yeah. Doesn't it's turn true. around. Does not even turn around. How does she know? Dang, dude. She does have <clears throat> that. That does. That is kind of underdeveloped. But she has that. That sort of Wait, is mysticism. Telepathic. It kind of seems like. I it. think so. I think, or she's sort of like. Is that canon? She's like. She's she, not seeing rack spurts right. around his head. Like <laughs> no. she finds him under the invisibility cloak somehow, right? I think she's. Yeah, she's sort of like preternaturally gifted in a in a like she's like an. 
a telepath and like an empath. Yeah. She just has, she's like extra sensory, extra sensory in a way, I think. Um, my unsung hero, this is sort of a cop-out, but it's gotta be Alan Rickman. He just elevates every scene. I mean, he always does. He's like the Michael Jordan of the Harry Potter movies, uh, which is also another cop-out cliche thing to say. But, um, the, the legitimacy scenes, I think, are great. Well, he has that... The, maybe the best Alan Rickman moment in the movies where she's like, and you weren't successful in that post. And he goes, obviously. obviously. I love when he cuts into Harry's memory of looking at the mirror of Erised and he's like feeling sentimental. Yeah. Because it's funny because it is like a sentimental flashback. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've got Alan Rickman's like amazing delivery and... uh Another great I, slap to the back of Ron's head. <laughs> and, and I think, I think those scenes are just illustrated really nicely. Like it gives you a feeling of yeah, stage, like in Harry's head. He, he like Maggie Smith does so much with so little, and you want to see him so much more. Yeah, but I do. I know I've said this before, but I think Alan Rickman is why people like Snape the character. He doesn't have to bail out Cho Chang in that scene where he says that you use the last of the truth syrup in uh, interrogating oh, yeah. Miss Chang. He, he doesn't have to say that. He could no. just say we're out of truth serum <laughs> and like not explain where it was used. Yeah, that is a really nice little tiny touch, and it's like this like moment of tenderness from Snape. Or was he doing it because he knew it would upset Harry? And then Harry didn't do anything about it. He was like, I'm just gonna watch you squirm because I know you were a jerk to her. You forgot truth serum existed, didn't you? <laughs> it's kind of it's like a twofer in such a Snape way. Like, are you being a jerk or are you being redemptive? Right. Who knows? Well, decent decent adapting there. Indeed. All right. We are on a little break from now until when we tell you otherwise, when we start Half-Blood Prince, which I'm getting so excited about because a lot of people really, really love this one, and I don't remember it at all. It's my favorite book. Oh, I love great. Half-Blood Prince. Okay, well... Two people vouching for it who I really trust. Professor Slughorn, one of my favorite characters in all of Harry Potter. Another great British actor, too. Yeah, yeah that's a great performance. I'm excited about that. So. so we'll talk to you when we talk to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. And Heather, let's get on a plane back to New York City. Let's indeed do that. You should do more Half-Blood Prince with us if yeah. it's your favorite. We'll, we'll definitely yeah, right. bring awesome. you in. Yeah. All right. Thanks, amigos. You're the weak one, and you'll never know love or friendship. And I- I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around.